Hey man, I hope you know the goodness of Jesus today. It's uh, such a wonderful thing, uh, the way God uses the, the lowly and the despised and the neglected things of the world to bring this uh, incredible truth. Um, I was just reflecting as we were singing, you know, here we are in this, this half-empty gymnasium on this snowy, blistery day, and this isn't the most polished uh, gathering that you're going to you're ever going to see in your life. This isn't certainly the most polished presentation or, or message or songs you're ever going to see. Um, God's just using ordinary people in this ordinary time. Uh, and, yet, and yet in that ordinariness, there's this, this thing that will change everything. Um, the, this message that will change your life, the Spirit of God to transform you. And it's, it's all right here in, in this lowliness. And I just am so thankful for that. And today as we jump back into the book of Acts, and please turn with me in your Bible to Acts 18, uh, that really is the story of the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we're going to do a bit of a reorientation because we've been out of this over the Advent season, but Acts 1 verse 8, um, I've called it a couple times, it's like the table of contents for the book of Acts. If you remember, this is when Jesus is resurrected and he's with his disciples and before he ascends to the Father's right hand and takes his seat and intercedes for us, before he, before he goes, he tells his disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So Jesus is going, and you think, don't go. There's, a, there's work to be done. There's a broken world. We, the world needs you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm ascending but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you, church, will be my witnesses. And then he says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so then this is kind of the storyline for the book of Acts. First, we wait for the, the reception of power and that happens in chapter two as the church is filled with the Spirit of God. And church, you, if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus, you have been filled with the Spirit of God. And so you've now been empowered to be the hands and feet and the mouth of Jesus in this broken world. You are now his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the spirit comes and the church is born and, and it spreads. And so then we follow the spread in the book of Acts and it spreads through Jerusalem and then through Judea and then Samaria. And where we are in the text now is it's spreading to the ends of the earth. And along the journey, we meet a man named Paul. When we meet him, we meet him by his Hebrew name, Saul. And he was a, a, not a particularly nice man. In fact, when we meet him, he's holding the cloaks of, a, of an angry mob while they're murdering Stephen, a follower of Jesus. So Paul is standing there watching with his approval. He's, in fact, it seems that he's so invigorated by the murderer of Stephen that, that Saul then goes on and he begins to seek out Christians in neighboring communities and he's pulling them out and, and taking them to prison. Uh, that's, that's who he is. And then Jesus meets Saul and absolutely transforms him and he becomes the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. And from chapter 13 onward, we're now following Paul. And of course, God is doing all kinds of things in lots of different places, but for the story of Acts, now we're following the apostle Paul and watching God do incredible things in and through this broken man. And in fact, at, at some point in the story, you almost forget that Paul's a broken man. Uh, you forget his background, you forget where he came from, and you start to think, this guy's invincible. He's, he's getting stoned in one place, and then he gets back up, and he goes to the next place and preaches the message, and then he goes back to where they stoned him, and he tells them again about Jesus. He's fearless, he's courageous, he's unstoppable. I just want to be like Paul. 
I, like, I, there, it doesn't seem like he's ever phased in any way, but if you remember, when we came into chapter 18, Paul comes into Corinth, and about six weeks ago, so you, I say if you remember, you probably don't, but six weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 18, Paul comes into Corinth, and things seem to be going smoothly in Corinth. He's sharing the gospel, um, you know, he starts in the synagogue as he always does, and then he, he has to move out, but there's success, like the, the ruler of the synagogue gets converted. That's a big deal, right? Paul, he's seeing really some wonderful signs of success in Corinth, and yet, Paul is weary and beaten down in Corinth. It seems like all of the things that he's been laboring through have caught up with him, because when he writes back to the Corinthians, and he describes his time with them, here's how he describes his time. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he tells them, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So Paul, when he thinks back to his time in Corinth, he says, that was not me at my best. In fact, that was me at my worst. And so, if you remember, last time we were in this passage, we looked at Jesus appears to Paul in a vision while he's in Corinth, and Jesus encourages this brother. And so last time we really zoomed in on that word of encouragement, and we're going to read that word of encouragement again today. We're going to kind of this is really the second part of what we looked at last time. So today we're, we're meeting Paul in that same place in Corinth. He's still, this is kind of weary, beaten down Paul. We're going to start at the message of encouragement that he receives from Jesus, and then we're going to read to the end of his time in Corinth. And if you're saying, hey, I wish you would have spent more time talking about the message that Jesus gave him. We did that six weeks ago. So you can find that. That's all on the internet. But um, we're going to pull a few more nuggets from that. But then I want you to see this picture as a whole, because there's a, an incredible lesson for us today. And so let's look now to the word of God, Acts chapter 18. We're going to read verses 9 all the way to 23. And particularly if you're here today and you are feeling weary and heavy laden, I would just encourage you, this word is for all of us, but perhaps particularly this word today is for you. Hear now God's word to us. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or Or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Cenchrae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia 
strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the latter verses that we just read, we're hearing about Paul's movement, right? And Luke wants us to know kind of how he's getting from A to B and what's happening. And so he's in Corinth and then he, he moves to Ephesus and now he's, he's going back and he's going to revisit the church in Antioch that sent him. But there are some curious details in the story. I confess, part of the, the job of, of preaching is that, you know, I look at the, the book as a whole and try and break out, okay, sermon here, sermon here, and you try to make, make sense of it. This is an interesting section because at first glance, it almost just seems like it's just a transition. Um, in the preaching outline, you write in, you know, Paul gets a haircut, question mark. I'm not, like, I don't know. And yet, when we look deeply as we have been, and, and we really come to understand what's happening, these pieces all fit together. This word of encouragement that Paul receives from Jesus, and then this court appearance, and then this haircut, which is the fulfillment of a vow, all of these pieces, they actually all fit together. And I want to scale back so that we can see this, because there are some wonderful lessons here for us today. Lessons that we can learn from what was for Paul a season of adversity. This was not Paul at his best. This was Paul in his weakness, physically weak, relationally strained. If I could just do a really quick synopsis of where Paul has been, if you remember, he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. And then he came into Philippi where he was thrown into prison. Then he came to Thessalonica where he was chased out of the city by an angry mob. He went to Berea where he was met with great success, but then that same angry mob found him in Berea and chased him out of Berea. And then he had to go to Athens and he was separated from his friends, his ministry partners, and he ministered and labored in Athens for very few converts. In fact, most of the people in Athens just called him a babbler. And so then from there, Paul makes his way to Corinth. That's, that's what Paul has been through as he's coming into Corinth. And so even though he's met with a degree of success in Corinth, Paul has been through it. He's been laboring through it and he's been accumulating some burdens and some losses. And as, as we saw, Paul described himself, he said, I was with you, Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so as we look at that episode in Corinth, what can we learn from Paul's season of adversity? I want to pull out just four lessons for us today. First, I want you to see that seasons of adversity do not disqualify us from service. And I'll just start very practically as we look at this point. I wonder if you've ever been in a season of life where you've been just laid low. Uh, maybe, in fact, I'm certain there are some of you today who are in this season. You just feel like a punching bag. You feel emotionally, spiritually, physically like you are, you are spent. That's, that's Paul here in Corinth, just, just spent. And when you're in that place and you just feel wiped and you feel washed out, we can hear the enemy whispering in our ear saying things like, you're not fit for service. Look at you. You're, you're afraid. You're a failure. But Jesus is looking for champions. He's not looking for weak people like you. And the dangerous thing with that voice is that the, the enemy is clever and that voice oftentimes can begin to sound like Jesus. And we begin to think this is Jesus saying, no, 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 not you. You're too weak. But that's not the voice of Jesus. I want you to look at, again at what the text says. To Jesus appears to Paul in his weakness. Paul who self-describes himself as weak and fearful, in fact trembling with his fear. 
Jesus appears to a person like that, and he says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. And if we look ahead to verse 11, we see that Paul did just that. He stayed a year and six months, altogether two years in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. Two years of of laboring in ministry in the midst of his weakness and his frailty and feeling like he's completely washed out. Paul's season of adversity did not disqualify him from service. In fact, after ministering through that, and as Paul looked back on that time in ministry, we we see that Paul realized that that season of weakness was actually a tremendous gift for him, and he found a power in that weakness that he didn't know before. So when he writes back to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells them that he describes like a thorn in his flesh when he was with them. And if you read five commentators, you're going to get five different opinions on what this thorn in Paul's flesh was. It doesn't actually matter. Some are like he, was, he must have been losing his vision or he was suffering from maybe some kind of depression or it, he's talking about the persecution. We don't know. And I think that's for a reason. Paul doesn't specify the exact thorn in his flesh. What we do know is what Paul tells us. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to pause there. So Jesus encounters Paul in a unique way in Corinth. Paul already told us in Acts 18, we've already heard about one vision that he had with Jesus in his weakness when Jesus kind of picks him up and says, keep going. But here in 2 Corinthians, he tells us about another vision. Like Jesus, in Paul's weakness, Jesus is right there with him. Oh, the goodness of Jesus. He is all that I need. And so Jesus comes to Paul as he's pleading that he would take this thing away. And Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Listen to this. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul needed to learn that lesson, and he learned it in Corinth. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn this lesson too. And maybe right now you're in the process of learning it. It, Maybe right now you have sidelined yourself from service. Maybe you have, it's, you know, it's, Sometimes we do, we give ourselves a pass, right? And you've just said, I'm too, I'm too weak, I'm not fit, I, I'm disqualified, I can't, I can't, I'm, God can't use a person like me. And you've put yourself on the sideline. If that's you, I just want to challenge you today to pray about that. I want to challenge you to pray about that and to really ask the question, is the voice that's telling me I'm disqualified, is that really from him? Listen, there are some things that disqualify us. Hear that. There are some things that disqualify us from service. If you're living in active rebellion against God, that disqualifies us from service. If you're living in unrepentant sin, that disqualifies us. If you're living in bitterness and resentment, yes, that disqualifies us from service. Our sin disqualifies us. Now, God can deal with the sin, but if you're living in that, then yeah, you've got some things that you need to deal with, for sure. But weakness? No. According to God's word, weakness is actually one of the primary tools that God uses to qualify us. Weakness humbles us, causes us to put our trust in him rather than in ourselves and in our plans and in our strength. It humbles us. It causes us not to think so highly of ourselves. 
it prepares us for when people inevitably say flattering things to us that our pride would take and weaponize against us. In fact, A.W. Tozer argues, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Behold this treasure, and that's, this gospel is treasure. Uh, maybe you're here today and you've never, you've never seen this treasure. This news that, that God loves the world and that he sent his son Jesus to set sinners free, that if, that if you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus today, that you can be saved, this is treasure This is light that breaks through the darkness in a world full of weary, exhausted people just trying to make something of themselves, never measuring up, and just overwhelmed by the brokenness of their world, the brokenness of their own lives. We have this treasure, but the Bible says we carry this treasure in jars of clay. Because a world like that, what what grips a world like that is not a bunch of people who who pretend that they have it all put together and pretend that we're amazing. What grips a world like that is, is broken people, jars of clay, who have this glory shining through them. All those cracks in you and all the cracks in me that we just plead with the Lord three times, take this from me, those cracks are the places where God just shines through. And the world looks in and they they see something in us. And what they see is not how awesome we are. What they see is how awesome he is. And they marvel at the fact that he uses people like us. And let us marvel at the fact that he used a person like Paul who in his weakness and his fear and in much trembling was used powerfully in the city of Corinth. So seasons of adversity do not disqualify us from service. That's our first lesson. The second is really kind of another way of coming at the first. So forgive me for being repetitive, but we need to hear this too. Seasons of adversity do not excuse us from obedience. Look again at verse 9. We're going to look at the same verse. Jesus says to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. We've already looked at these words, and in our first go-around, we heard these as a word of comfort. And some of you today need to hear that word of comfort. You just need to hear Jesus coming alongside of you, and you've, you've put yourself on the sidelines. You need to hear him pulling you in and saying, hey, keep, keep moving, keep pressing on. You're not disqualified, so you need to hear that. But I would argue that there are others of us who need to hear this today as a firm call to action. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. It's interesting. You can't actually, you don't hear the tone in the text. You kind of insert the tone. How did Jesus say this? I'll tell you. He said it exactly the way that Paul needed to hear it. And he'll say it exactly the way that you need to hear it this morning. How many times does God command his people not to be afraid in the scriptures? Fear not, he says. How many times has he proven his faithfulness to his people? in the scriptures and in our lives? How many times has he led his people through impossible circumstances and brought victory out of what appeared to be certain defeat again and again and again? And Paul has seen this. Paul has lived through this. Paul knows better than to be sidelined by fear. And so Jesus appears to Paul in a time when Paul is frail and frightened. And he comes alongside of, and he calls him firmly to action calls him to press forward with the assignment he's been given. Perhaps there are some of us here today who, more than we need to hear a a warm word of encouragement, need to hear a firm call to action. Need to hear Jesus' invitation to shake off 
that fear and that apathy and those things that have taken root in us in the midst of our weakness so that we can re-engage with the assignment that he gave to us. Sometimes when we're in the valley and we're weak and we're discouraged, it is easy for us to give ourselves a pass. I feel that. Frankly, I would have given myself a pass for the sermon today if I could have. We convince ourselves that we're too weak, too frail, too frightened to be of any use to the Lord. And so we, we sit on the sidelines. And it, sound, it sounds like Paul maybe was in a season of his life where it would have been easy for him to sit on the sidelines, but Jesus wouldn't have it. He reminded Paul of his powerful presence. He reminded Paul that he was working in this city, and he called Paul forward. And as I read that, I was really struck by a quote that I read a long time ago by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, in a sermon he preached on Romans uh, chapter 6. And this is a lengthy quote. I'm going to read it to you. This quote does not sound like me, and I, and I want to read it in full because I want you to hear this approach. It doesn't sound like our culture either. It's helpful to read people who've ministered in, in different times and different cultures. I, this, I, I was gripped by this, and I, I just want to share this with you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. What we all need is not a doctor, but a sergeant major. Here we are, as it were, slouching about the parade ground, feeling our own pulses, feeling miserable, talking about our weakness. So we say, I need a doctor. I need to go to the clinic. I need to see the medical officer. That is not right. What you need is to listen to the voice of the sergeant major who is there shouting out the commands of God to you. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yield yourself unto God. You have no business to be slouching about like that. Stand on your feet. Realize who and what you are enlisted in the army of God. Present yourself. This is not a clinic. The main trouble with the Christian church today is that she is too much like a clinic, too much like a hospital. That's why the great world is going to hell outside. We are all suffering, to quote Charles Lamb again, with the mumps and measles of the soul and feeling our own pulses and talking about ourselves and about our moods and our subjective states. We've lost the concept of the army of God, the king of righteousness in this fight against the kingdom of evil. What can I do to be delivered, we tend to say. I answer, look at the great campaign. Look at it, objectively, Look at it from God's standpoint. Forget yourself and your temporary troubles and ills for a moment. Fight in the army. It is not a clinic you need. You must realize that we are in a barracks and that we're involved in a mighty campaign. Now that, that I, even reading that, it bristles against me. Some of my own tendencies, my own impulses. And of course, he's near to the brokenhearted. He, he, he meets us in our weariness, of course. And yet, and yet, if there's a corrective that we need in our culture, I believe this is one of them. That so often we look at our weakness, we look at our frailty, and we, we use that not as what Paul saw, which was an opportunity for the strength of God to shine through us, not as an opportunity for us to be humble and to press forward in faith, but we use that instead as an opportunity to disobey God's clear call in our lives and to sit down on the sidelines. Listen, we may be tired. In fact, Many of us are tired, but that doesn't mean that we can abandon the Great Commission and spend our lives living in leisure and comfort. And we may be hurt, some of us are, 
But that doesn't mean we should spend this one life that we have to live licking our wounds, feeling sorry for ourselves. And we may be frightened. In fact, some of us are. But that doesn't mean that we can spend the rest of our lives hiding from the hard things that he's called us to. We have one life, one life. If anyone had an excuse to to sit back, it was Paul. He'd been through it. Jesus came alongside and he said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. We're reminded in this story that seasons of adversity do not excuse us from obedience. And that leads us to the third lesson, because you wonder how on earth do we possibly then respond to that? Maybe you're here and you're feeling weak and frail and weary, and you're thinking, well, how, what do I do? Well, thirdly, we learn seasons of adversity should prompt desperate prayer. Here's where the haircut factors in. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Kencray, he had his he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now Luke doesn't say more about that, and it, perhaps it would be helpful if he did. Luke writes as, as if we would understand intuitively what had happened. Of course, for Paul and his companions, they intuitively understood what's going on. Um, but he's coming out of Corinth, at which point he cuts his hair in fulfillment of a vow. Almost every commentator agrees this is pointing back to what is the, the Nazarite vow. And you can read about that in number six. Let me just read the first five verses. Describes what it was, what was really like a heightened form of prayer and fasting for a, for a Jewish man. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. So Paul in Corinth, puts himself under this vow, which was a a time of of prayer and a form of fasting and dedicating himself to God. What's happening here? As we look at the story as a whole, it it becomes a little more clear, doesn't it? Paul is in Corinth, and he's at the end of himself, and he's being called to an assignment that he realizes is going to require more of him than he naturally possesses. It's going to require more of him than he can see in the reserve. More courage, more faithfulness, more obedience, more resolve. And he's looking at himself and he's saying, I don't see it in me, Jesus. And so Paul in Corinth at some point, and I'm going to guess it was probably right when he heard that encouragement from Jesus. But I don't know. At some point in that ministry, Paul makes a vow to the Lord and he commits himself to a season of intensive prayer and fasting. He, he commits himself to the Lord and says, I need you right now in, a, in a, an acute way. And that is a powerful lesson for us because as I look at, at my own life, not always, but at times, I'll confess to you today, I sometimes see the opposite happening in me. And I would suspect that we, if we're being honest, sometimes see the opposite in ourselves. 
that when the waves start crashing over our heads, sometimes rather than intuitively turning to God in prayer, we intuitively hide from God and we, we turn into ourselves. We start looking for strength in ourselves or we start trying to comfort ourselves with whatever it is, with, with food, with television, with entertainment, with perhaps we're turning to sin, the sins of the past, those wells that we used to go to even though they never satisfied us. We in, intuitively turn to the place where we expect to find comfort. And I want you to see today, we need to see today that Paul is intuitively turning to the Lord and he's turning to him desperately. You know, Fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that when you talk about it in the church, you know, any, everyone can say, for, whenever you talk about prayer, every believer will say, I, I need to pray more. You know, you'll never meet the believer who says, I pray exactly as much as I should. Right? We all know, I want to grow in this. I need to grow in this. And, and then you, fasting, you multiply that by 100. And Christians don't know what to do with that. I turned to a, an article in my study this week just thinking about what it is to, to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting and, and to really lean in the way we see Paul leaning in. And uh, it was a great article on the Gospel Coalition website by Pastor David Kakish. You can find a link to that on my manuscript. Which you, you can find that after the fact. But in that, it was a really helpful article. And he pointed out something that I hadn't seen before, and it was very helpful. He pointed out that fasting is a spiritual discipline that's un- unlike the others. Other spiritual disciplines are happening all the time. Right? So we're, we're always seeking the Lord in the Word. We're always reading the Word. We're always in prayer. We're always fellowship. And, and yet fasting, when we see it in Scripture, it comes up at, at a particular time. Fasting comes up at a time of adversity. So Aaron fasts when? When his son dies. And the nation fasts when they fall under conviction for their sins. And the exiles fast when they're taken away to Babylon. And so in the article, he explains that in fasting, we are denying the comfort often legitimately found in the good things that God gives us, like food or drink. And we run instead to God himself for consolation. In every instance, fasting was a response to an extenuating circumstance. Which is to say what? to say for some of us today maybe you're here and you are in the valley it's you you're in the season of adversity and even right now as I say this you can see intuitively in yourself that you are you've been seeking comfort in the wrong places if I could just challenge you and by the word of God here follow this example what would it look like for you in this season to say to choose and say God I'm going to turn to you for comfort in this season I'm going to turn to you for strength in fact in fact, I'm going to fast. I am going to, I'm going to set apart my, my Monday of my week and I, I'm not going to eat any food because I, more than I need food, I need you. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to give up breakfast for this next season of my life and, and each morning I'm going to seek you rather than eating my oatmeal. And that might seem silly, but isn't it interesting? When we are in our grief, when we're in these seasons of adversity, isn't the appetite the first thing to go anyways? Because... God knows that we are this, the word, like a psychosomatic beings, right? Like my mind, my spirit, my soul, all, my body, all that, it's all connected, right? And in this season of desperation, the Bible seems to have given us a tool, God's given us a tool of, of prayer and fasting to seek the Lord in a heightened way. And so I would just encourage you, I'm encouraging myself, when we find these seasons to 
coming upon us rather than turning back to all those places where we've never found the strength or the comfort we needed. Let's turn to him. As a church, let's resolve to turn to him desperately. Seasons of adversity should prompt desperate prayer. But there's one last lesson we learn in this story. Fourth lesson here. We're reminded here that seasons of adversity are for our good. For our good. So we've, we've already seen that good things are happening in Paul's weakness. God's teaching him valuable lessons. And if that's all that happened in this season of adversity, that would be worth it, right? And yet, there's more that's happening here. We see it in verses 12 to 17. It says, But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So I mentioned that Paul is in Corinth, and Paul's got this sense of dread. He just knows that something's wrong. Interestingly, we find out here in verse 12 that Paul wasn't wrong. And here's something I want to just kind of, this isn't anything I wrote, but when we're feeling that heaviness, that weariness, that fear, sometimes it's a, it's a founded fear, right? There's, it's valid. Here we see what Paul was feeling was valid. There really was an angry group that was mounting up in the background waiting to attack Paul once again. That's what he was afraid of. It's happening, right? He's, been, he's had this happen in other cities. Sometimes they stone him, leave him for dead. Sometimes they whip him on his back. Sometimes they throw him in prison. Paul's got the, all the marks on his body just reminding him of what this angry group is going to do. And here in verse 12, his fears are realized. The mob comes, they grab Paul, they drag him before the proconsul, and, and once again, Paul's at the tribunal at the mercy of this magistrate. And yet, there in that place, after the mob throws all their slander at Paul, he musters up the courage and he prepares to make his defense, and then he doesn't need to make a defense. Because the proconsul weighs in, and he says, this, this argument is, is an argument within Judaism. All this talk about Jesus and the law and your, all of this, this happens within Judaism and it's none of Rome's business to weigh in on this. And so get out of here. And at first glance you read that and you think, well, that's, that's good. You know, Paul dodged a bullet. Um, that, was a, that was a win for Paul. And it was. But actually what happened in that story was, was profound. It was profound. And in order to understand just how profound it was, we need to understand something of the the political landscape that Paul was ministering in. At the time that the early church is breaking out and Paul's ministering, Rome is the superpower in the world. Uh, Rome is the most powerful nation, and in this Mediterranean world where Paul is ministering, Rome is in control everywhere. So when Paul goes into a city, he's going into a Roman city. And Rome had the power and the authority to squash any religious movement that they thought might be harmful for their agenda. And they frequently did that. You know, a new religion would form up and Rome would just squish it like a bug. So the question then becomes, what's going to happen to Christianity? Now the Romans wanted to keep the peace. And so there were some religions that they allowed to coexist 
in their world. These were called uh, religio licita, if I remember that right. Essentially, they were approved religions by Rome. They're like, we will tolerate. You can, you can proselytize, tell people about your religion. You can worship, even though we worship the emperor. You can do this. Uh, and so Judaism was one of those approved religions. But what's going to happen to Christianity? That's, that's a really big question for these new believers. But here, Richard Longnecker tells us of this episode in Acts 18. He says, The importance of Galileo's decision was profound. As it was, Galileo's refusal to act in the matter was tantamount to the recognition of Christianity as a religio licita. And the decision of so eminent a Roman proconsul would carry weight wherever the issue arose again and would give pause to those who might want to oppose the Christian movement. Meaning, this decision created legal precedent. And that matters. That mattered for the early church. More than we can realize as we kind of read this through at first glance. Luke understood how much it mattered. That's part of why he recorded this story. I mean, remember, Luke is ministering in this same time frame, and he wants to keep a record that a decision has been made. Like a Roman proconsul has, has made a decision here, and this protects believers. This wasn't just a local win for Paul. It was a global win for the church. Another commentator explains, this was an immensely important verdict, not only because it protected the Christians in the province of Achaia from legal cases against their beliefs and against the existence of their new congregations, but also because this was the first time that a Roman official issued a legal verdict concerning the followers of Jesus. Now, I recognize for some of you, that's kind of going over your head. Just If I could summarize what happened here is, is the enemy tried to take a, a swing at Paul and in Paul at, at the church. And yet what happened was they missed. And not only did they miss, they swung right around and knocked themselves in the chin. And a shield was put up around the church. That's what's happening in this moment. This legal shield of protection now is, is going up around the church. And it's going to enable the church, this early church, to spread with a, with a degree of protection throughout the empire. This is, an, this is an enormous win. Now, in the moment when Paul comes into Corinth and he's beaten and he's got all these scars on his back from the last whipping and he's disfigured from the stoning and he's got, you know, his back, is, his neck is all messed up because he spent these days in prison. When he's there and he sees this mob starting to gather up in Corinth behind the scenes, do you think Paul realizes how good this is going to be? Probably not. When we're in the season of adversity, it's very rare that we're able to see the good that God is doing. And yet, as Paul stands there before the proconsul and he gets ready to make his defense and all of a sudden the proconsul brings this ruling and, and the enemies, the opposition start beating each other up right in front of Paul, all of a sudden he realizes what God has done. That God brought him here in this moment so that he could protect and preserve his people. God was doing a good thing such that later when Paul comes out of Corinth and he writes his letter to the Romans, Paul can say with a great degree of confidence we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Can I just say that verse, I recognize that if you are living in a season of adversity, if you're here and your marriage is falling apart, or your kids are, are running away from the Lord, or you're about to lose your job, or you just got that terrible diagnosis from the doctor, when you hear the, the young, healthy pastor quote Romans 8.28, I recognize that sometimes that feels more like an insult than a comfort. I get it. But I want you to hear this today from the Apostle Paul. 
He's not the young, healthy pastor. He's, he's the broken down, disfigured apostle who has, who has been through this time and time again. And he is, he is writing you know, with the help of someone else. He's dictating because he can't even write anymore. He's dictating that we know this. That in all things, when there are enemies rising up in the background and they're about to drag us before the court, when we're stoned and left for dead, when we're thrown into the prison, in all these things, when we are weak and, and, and we're fearful and we're trembling, we know that in all of these things, God is working together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He's working. He is working. And, I, and if that's difficult to hear from me, hear it from the Apostle Paul, hear it from the Word of God. He is working. And if it's difficult just to wrap your head around that, then can look to the cross, brothers and sisters, and see at the cross that this is what God does. This is what God does. That is the place where, where it looked most evil, most vile. The suffering was at the, the highest peak in intensity, and yet even there at the cross, God is working for our good. All the evil, all the hatred, the undeserved suffering that was laid upon Jesus was the means by which we have been set free. And what happened to Paul is almost like just a little microcosm of what happened at the cross. Right? Paul's enemies are mounting around him. The mobs accusing him, slandering him falsely even though he's innocent. And yet little do they know that in dragging him before the proconsul, they're actually putting in motion the thing that's going to protect the people of God legally. And isn't that just a little glimpse of what's happening at the cross? As our enemy laughs, as Christ is nailed to the cross, and he's mocked and slandered, and they spit at him. And it looks for all the world like, like we've lost, like it's over. And yet, it was in his death that we live. As he declared, it is finished. He didn't mean it is, it is over, we've lost. He means it is accomplished. God is one. That's our story. We live in the kingdom of God. It's the upside-down kingdom. In the upside-down kingdom, our winning often looks and feels like losing. We just need to, we need to make peace with that, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this kingdom, down is the way up. Suffering and and the cross is the path to glory. And, and so we march forward. And sometimes we march forward in weakness and fear and much trembling with the Apostle Paul. And if that's you today, I just want to remind you, you're in good company. In fact, you're right where God wants you to be, difficult as that is to hear. So surrender yourself to him today. Surrender yourself to him today and embrace the fact that God is doing something right now that you just can't see. And yet it's good. And watch what he will do. And if you're here and you've been sitting on the sidelines, I, I just want to encourage you. Surrender yourself and, and just in, invite him and say, God, if it's time to pull me off the sidelines, then do it. To that end, let me, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. I thank you that Lord, you, you never call us to do anything that you will not equip us to do. And so, Lord, as we look at the Apostle Paul in Corinth, Lord, even though our brother, he was our brother in Christ, and he was weak, he was fearful, he was trembling, but you were with him through it all. Thank you, Lord, that he sought you, and I thank you, Lord, that this has been recorded for us, that we could learn. Lord, I pray that 
that you would help us because the same spirit that worked in Paul is the spirit that works in us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to go forth, Lord, that we would not be silent, that we would not be afraid, but that we would know that you're with us, that we would know that there are many in this city who are your people, that we would preach with boldness and witness with courage and conviction. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see in those things that, that make us feel weak and those things that make us feel like we're not fit for use, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that they are the ways that you're going to glorify yourself in our lives. Uh, Lord, we've seen it time and time again. Lord, help us to remember and help us to trust you. And Lord, we ultimately, we pray that through us and Lord, in our weaknesses and what we offer, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in this city and in this world. God, I just pray that you would save the lost men and women all around us. Lord, perhaps even in this room. God, that you would show them that Lord, even though the world offers this glitzy, glamorous, polished package and promises happiness and life and joy it's not true it will not satisfy and lord i pray that that you would open eyes to see that through this broken down um, unpolished people of god filled with weakness and frailty there is a there is a glory hidden in it shining through there is life there is water that we can drink and we'll never thirst again there's life and life everlasting God, I pray that today you'd bring conviction and repentance. Lord, that you'd bring trust and faith in Jesus. Uh, God, only you can do that. So we ask that you would. So Lord, we surrender ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Worship team, would you lead us?